Coming up on today's show, Leela Ahir and Todd Lowen, two of the candidates for the UCP leadership, will join us to outline their vision for the party. Big shakeup in the federal Conservative leadership race. Patrick Brown has been disqualified. We'll get details and insight from Melissa Cowett and an amazing discovery made up by Grand Prairie. Right now, though, we're going to speak with Leela Ahir, another UCP leadership candidate and MLA for Chestermere Strathmore. Um, Ms. Ahir, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Hey, Shay, it's nice to chat with you and just, just call me Leela, please. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. We'll do. Um, now, of course, you're looking to uh, lead the party, so let's get right into it here. Um, this party is divided. We know that. There's no question that there's a lot of you know competing viewpoints. Um, what's your vision? For the UCP, um, if you're a leader and you're setting the course, what does this party look like? Well, I think that there's a massive opportunity when you have things like this happen. You have the a beautiful ability to engage with Albertans. We've we've we're a baby party. We're new, and there's obviously going to be things that happen. Um, but this opportunity is a way to earn trust back from people, and I think. When you put the when you're when you're looking at you you know unity and the divisiveness that has happened, you have only one way to go, and that's up, and that's building from the party. It's building from expanding that party. It's from being in front of people, listening, and really, really being able to engage with folks and and earn their trust back after everything that they've gone through. That is an amazing way to be able to show and reflect what government could look like. You speak about trust and rebuilding trust, and there was an incident that happened, I think it was a week ago, two weeks ago now, that I I saw on Twitter, and I know a lot of people were questioning your trustworthiness, and I just want to walk through this and and get an explanation. Following the Roe v. Wade decision in the U.S., you tweeted out a video statement. Here, here's I'll just play a, a, a brief portion of it. We, as elected officials, must protect women's rights locally, nationally, and internationally. I defend women's reproductive rights, and I am... Here today, standing with every single individual across this beautiful country who has fought for these rights in Canada, for the rights of body autonomy. So that was last week. But Mm -hmm. in 2018, of course, uh, you were one of the UCP MLAs who got up and left the legislature rather than vote either in favor or against um, enshrining safe zones outside of abortion clinics in Alberta. So I'm just wondering, when you talk about trustworthiness, where do you Mm -hmm. stand? I mean, because it seems like that issue changed dramatically over the course of a couple of years. No, no. When you abstain, there is no other way to abstain, Shay, in the legislature other than to walk out. There were many, as you know, in caucuses, we are whipped into having votes one way or the other. My choice was to vote against or to walk out. So instead of voting against, and particularly because it was such a divisive conversation, mm-hmm. it wasn't a con- because <laughs> there's so much more to it than abortion. We're talking about endometriosis. We're talking about IVF. We're talking about rape kits. We're talking about SARS nurses. We're talking about expansion in rural areas none of which was debated in that debate. And I would have loved, loved the opportunity to have been able to debate, but these were my options at that time. The NDP was well aware of that. It's a shame that that divisiveness has been used instead of standing together and actually doing what's right on behalf of the people of Alberta. It has been, uh, I don't even know how to explain it to you, how beautiful it is to be unhandcuffed from ideological politics. That, that's an interesting point. So I, I'm wondering then, as leader, 
um, that how would you approach that? It sounds like it was a painful and difficult time for you very, to sort of have to follow painful. the party line. So if you're a mm-hmm. leader, um, do you demand that everybody else in the party follow what you do? Or will they be free to, in the legislature, vote against things that, you know, your party may think is important? Well, if the party has done its consultation, if we've done the work, there's a lot of opportunity before you get in the legislature to see where things are going to land. I think this is a big part that's been missing is that there's a lack of collaboration, right? So, like, for example, I just passed a piece of legislation for female genital mutilation, and we got unanimous support in the legislature because we worked with the NDP. We worked with our people. We answered a lot of really difficult questions, and it's been five and a half years of work, right? I'm not saying every piece of legislation should take that time, but this was a really sensitive one, and it required a lot of nuanced discussion, similar to the discussion we're having right now about Roe versus Wade, right? Like, we, mm-hmm. th- those require their personal it's difficult. People have a lot of feelings about those things. And if in a democracy, we have to be able to not only hear people's person, their, their personal spaces about it, but to be able to debate it in a way that I think is robust and thoughtful so people are heard. And, and you have to make a decision one way or the other, obviously. But if you're asking, I, I prefer robust debate, and I would prefer that we had reached I mean, you know, I voted against Billy Duane against my own government. Yes. So yeah. I'm not afraid of standing up in particular to things like after time, when you figure out that the, that there is nefarious things that go on and, and behaviors that are inappropriate, you have a responsibility to do that. And, you know, if I could go back in time and perhaps have even been a stronger person at the time, I think I would have made a different decision. But having said that, even ever since that debate, I've done everything in my power to clarify my position on that just to make sure that people understand. But it's a really fair question. And I think that robust debate is in most important part of what we do in the legislature. At the same time, we require the work that goes into it to make sure that people understand that they have consensus and the questions that we're asking are contributing to that debate. Um, yeah, fair enough. Um, the, the issue that seems to have come to the forefront so far during this campaign, and there will be others, but the one that seemed to attract the most attention is relations with Ottawa. And we've seen some mm-hmm. of your opponents in this race talk about, you know, we're not going to enforce federal laws and we're going to bring in sovereignty acts and all the rest of this stuff. What's your approach on how to handle Ottawa? Have we failed? Do we need to do a better job? And if so, how? Well, I wish I had a perfect answer for you, but nothing so far that has happened has worked, right? Like, can you put your finger on a particular situation that has actually been feasible? We've had a few successes. Yeah, Rebecca I mean, Schultz told me last week that she did a great job on the childcare front. So, you know, she said that worked. Well, and I think, too, Rebecca, and to her credit, absolutely, but th- this is like a government thing. It's not a one-person thing, right? right? We work on it collaboratively. There are many ministers at the table that build relationships. That's what you try and do at that point. So if we're talking about building relationships, this is exactly where I agree. That that happened not as a result of fighting, not as a result of anger, not as a result of pushing back or not following laws or not following the rule of law. It happened because there was a government that was in place with that particular deal, particularly the people of Alberta were absolutely adamant about that deal happening. So when you're able to have the, you know, the backing of the people of Alberta, you go into a collaborative discussion and you come out with an excellent end result like that. And it's a very, very good result. She totally deserves kudos for it. But this is the thing is that she had to do the work. She had to collaborate 
this is an opportunity where we can learn from that's exactly one of the that's exactly what we should do and if if there's an opportunity like one of the things we were thinking about is for example to be able to build relationships is to have those regular committees outside of the ministries right that can build those relationships and really have some understanding as to the why and so i i think that i'm a collaborator I believe in working together and I believe in asking a lot of questions to figure out what is it that's stopping us from being successful. And, you know, I, I think there's a huge opportunity there. Uh, last one, and then I'll let you go. We are sure. looking at a multi-billion dollar surplus uh, and you would, if you win this, you would be premier and in control of that surplus. And we know that mm-hmm. Albertans are facing soaring costs of living. How do those two work together? What would be your plan? Well, uh, you know, it's interesting. I was speaking with um, a, lar- a large part of the, um, you know, our ethnic minority communities, which are no longer the minority, actually. They're 52% of our population, which is amazing. And when you speak with folks that are entrepreneurial and working, and a lot of them work in the nonprofit sector and they're working towards building a province, we have a lot of infrastructure that we have available to us to be able to help folks out right away, immediately, without, you know, writing checks or anything like that. Like, we, we need to re-index age right away. We need to make sure that that's topped up. We need to work with seniors who are on fixed incomes right now in particular because a lot of them, I'm sure you heard um, on the um, My Premier, My Province, there was that one fellow who called in who was saying that, you know, he had never he had never taken a red cent from the province and he was in his 80s and he was trying to decide whether he could stay in his house or pay his bills. You know, we have the opportunity to look at child care and uh, the child tax benefit, and so many other pieces of infrastructure, I think, that would be very, very helpful to families immediately. And so we're looking at those options because it's more, it's more than just writing a check right now. We have to look at the sustainability because, Shay, what if this is our last oil boom? Right, sure. We have to put, you know, a good government, a fiscal government will put some of that away, make sure that the folks that are putting it away, being us, can't access it. So that it's there for when it's needed in crisis. You saw in the United States, there looks like there could be potentially another wave of COVID heading our way. There's so many things to assume that this boon that we have right now is just going to keep coming. Um, I think lacks the commitment to what fiscal responsibility is. We have to take a really, and quite frankly, I work for you. I'm simply a steward of taxpayer dollars. I need to ask and I need to find out what Albertans want to do. Uh, Leela, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Now, though, we're going to have a chat with Todd Lowen, who is another UCP leadership candidate, also MLA for Central Peace Notley. Uh, Mr. Lowen, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. No, thank you. Happy to be here. Um, I'll start with the same question I started with um, Leela here. As someone who wants to take over leadership of what we know to be a very divided party, um, what's it look like? What's the vision that you have for the UCP if you're the one in charge and setting the course? Well, I think there's a lot of things Albertans are concerned about right now. And there's, uh, as I travel the province, there's uh, several issues that keep coming up. Uh, one is, uh, you know, fixing health care. There's a lot of people concerned about the the cost of living and how inflation has uh, caused you know issues within families as far as making life affordable. Concerns about uh, you know autonomy between uh, Alberta and Ottawa and how our you know how Ottawa has been affecting the lives of Albertans. 
fiscal responsibility is another uh, big issue that keeps coming up. So there's a lot of different things that keep coming up over and over as mm-hmm. they uh, crisscross the province. Let's talk about a couple of those, uh, specifically the Ottawa situation. We know that some of the people within this race have said that they'll bring in um, legislation that would mean Alberta no longer enforces federal laws that we don't like, uh, exerting sovereignty, those sorts of things. Where do you stand on Alberta's relationship with Ottawa? How far would you go down that road? I think what we've what we found so far is that we've we've tried nothing, and uh, now it, we're looking around like we're out of options. When really we haven't tried anything yet. We've done a lot of talking about standing up to Ottawa, but uh, have done absolutely nothing to uh, work towards standing up and and putting putting us in a stronger position with Ottawa. So I think we we have to start acting and uh, instead of asking, and we need to, you know. Uh, you know, definitely take a stronger stance with Ottawa and start doing some of the things that we, we campaigned on, for instance, in the last election. Which would mean what? Give me some specifics. What what action should we be taking? I think we need to be we need to have our own pension plan. We need to look at having our own employment insurance. We need to start collecting our own provincial taxes for starters. And uh, you know, just there's just a, a bunch of things that again that we've talked about in the past and we keep kicking the can down the road and and uh, and not doing anything and so far ottawa has been able to uh, I, I think mistreat us and and we've done nothing but send strongly worded letters back to, back to ottawa one of the challenges i think whoever takes over leadership of the ucp faces and it's hard to dispute is uh, getting unity and getting people on board the reason we're here i want to know what you think um the premier says he's no longer premier or won't be soon because of anger over COVID decisions, um, which you publicly oppose. Um, do you agree with that? Or is it a result of what his critics cite, which is a lack of humility and an unwillingness to listen, which you also mentioned as being part of the problem? Where, where's the division lie and where did Kenny go wrong and what would you do differently? Okay. Yeah, it, and I, I agree completely with the the, the discussion on uh, uh, his listening skills as uh, being uh, a lot to be desired. We had lots of discussions in caucus where he would go the opposite way of the majority of caucus on numerous occasions, and uh, and that was probably his biggest downfall. Now, again, we we look back to. Uh, to the 2019 election and it seemed like uh, it didn't take long maybe three four or five months before i started seeing the wheels falling off this bus where and at that time that was long before covid where people were starting to realize that he wasn't going to stand up to ottawa he wasn't going to do the things that he promised and uh, and that that, that created a, a lot of division right there but as far as doing something different, I mean, we, we need to, uh, as a government, we need to be listening to each other. We need to be listening to the people. We have MLAs elected from across the province that are there to represent their, uh, their constituents. And uh, when, when they go to the legislature and they're not listened to there, I think that sends a very poor message back to the people that elected MLAs that, uh, that they feel that they're not being listened to either. So I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of things that we can do to improve that, that communication and, and be able to work a lot more collaboratively. Uh, right now we're seeing the double-edged sword that is Alberta, very apparent once again. Costs Albertans pay for everything soaring, but on the other hand, that's because gas prices are soaring and that means great things for pro- provincial revenues. Uh, we know a huge surplus is on the way. What do you do with that surplus, keeping in mind that Albertans are saying the province needs to do more to help them? Yes, and and we, we need to do a lot of different things, but I think we need to focus on, we right now we have $112 billion in debt. We're paying $2.7 billion of interest a year. We can't uh, ignore that, that situation where we have a good percentage of the, the Alberta budget every year just goes to pay down uh, debt. 
and uh, actually just pay interest on the debt. So we need to be focused on on paying that down so we can start uh, using that money that we're paying for interest, using that for benefiting Albertans. Uh, that that's uh, that's probably the most important thing off the top. There's always lots of things to spend money on. There's no doubt, uh, but hardly ever does spending money solve problems. We we do have to uh, make sure our government programs are funded enough so that they work and they're functional. There's a lot of efficiencies I think we can find as we as we go forward. But uh, but again, when we we look at that amount of debt that we have and that interest that's just going to keep compiling, and as if interest rates rise, then then that that uh, amount of money that we pay annually, which is uh, more than. Uh, I think all but probably four or five government departments. Uh, that's that's a lot of money going down the drain. Ultimately, if you do take over leadership, like you said, you want to be listening, you want to have a collaborative approach, but you do have to ultimately make the decision. How do you manage what we know, or at least at this point, prior to the next election, um, differing views on a number of issues, COVID, for example, convoys, for example, people have differing opinions on those. Ultimately, how do you allow those voices to be heard, but you still need to be the one at the wheel and directing the way the party goes, you have to make the call in the end, don't you? Yeah, yeah. There's obviously decisions that have to be made in the end. But again, working collaboratively and uh, listening, uh, we've seen uh, previous premiers like Ralph Klein, who who uh, made sure that he had a majority of caucus on side before he went in any direction, and maybe even uh, up to two thirds. I think that's something that's uh, that would be very beneficial is making sure that you have a majority caucus on side before you go ahead with anything. And again, we we there is going to be tough decisions to be made, and I and I I agree completely that the, that in the end somebody's going to have to be making those decisions. But but uh, it's best that if. At, at minimum, everybody has their say, mm-hmm. but so that there's so they they feel like they've been listened to. But when they're when they're, when nobody's uh, nobody has that feeling, including Albertans, that they've been listened to, then it just makes it hard to uh, to, to satisfy Albertans with the direction of government. You were tossed from caucus for dissenting and for having your voice heard and not agreeing. Would you handle things the same way, or would you allow for open dissent within your caucus? No, we we have to be able to allow for for open discussion like that. Uh, that that uh, that dissent that I had was was due to months and months and months of of, uh, of a premier not listening, and uh, and actually not listening to to the entire caucus. I was caucus chair. I chaired the meetings, so I got to see firsthand how how MLAs were treated in caucus meetings and how they were the the lack of uh, concern over the the. The things that they brought forward from their constituents, and uh, so yes, definitely have to handle that differently. We have to be able to listen and take care of uh, take care of things in a in a more appropriate manner. Mr. Lowen, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time today. Never a dull moment. Uh, You know, you head into the summertime and you start to think, well, things are going to slow down. You get into the dog days of summer. And, you know, I've been in this business for a long time. And typically summers can get a little quiet. (laughs) You're sort of looking for things to talk about. No, no, not lately. Um, And the latest uh, story to sort of fall in our laps happened last night. Patrick Brown disqualified from the federal conservative leadership race. Ballots have already begun to be mailed out. He's on them. In many cases, they say that's not going to be a problem. They've got a plan for dealing with that, so that shouldn't be an issue. Um, apparently, the allegations, uh, what, what's happening here, uh, Ian Brody, who is the chair of the Leadership Election Organizing Committee, says the party has learned of, quote, serious allegations of wrongdoing by the Gra- Brown campaign related to financing rules in the Canada Elections Act. That's it. 
Really, to this point, that's all we know. In response, Patrick Brown's camp has said, this is reprehensible, undemocratic behavior that breaks faith with hundreds of thousands of Canadians that embraced Patrick Brown's vision of a modern, inclusive, conservative party. He goes on to say that this is being done to benefit Pierre Polyev, um, saying the attempt to silence Canadians and skirt democratic values through this unfounded disqualification is the only in way to ensure that his victory was secured. So he's alleging that the party is doing this to basically create a coronation situation for Pierre Polyev. It's nasty stuff. It's nasty stuff. So let's get into it with Melissa Cowett now, who is a Western Canadian public policy professional, principal of MC Consulting, a conservative strategist. Uh, Melissa, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us once again. Thanks for having me, Shay. First of all, uh, do you have any more information beyond what I've seen and read in that last story in terms of allegations regarding fiscal something or other, but we don't really know what? Do you know anything more? I don't. I think a lot of those same sort of rumors, people are are speculating on the finance side of things. There were some things um, in the news that suggested that um, that the financing side of things was how staff were being paid by corporations, which mm-hmm. is not allowed. But all of this is really just people um, people gossiping and talking behind the scenes. So we don't have any any proof of exactly what happened. Of course, in a situation like this, a lot of times the first thing that people will think is that there's been impropriety with memberships, which is what people have been saying behind the back as well. But we know that the party has done their due diligence on that front. So I think that those at this point are just rumors. But yeah, we know it has something to do with um, financing. We just don't know exactly what, because the party has said that they're not going to speak further about it. Yeah. uh, Elections Canada may may give us more information as we go farther along here. But right now, that's all we know. Um, How does this affect the race? Where did you have Patrick Brown? I would say third, maybe second, uh, according to some analysts, but I would say third, right? I would say third as well. Third with sort of strong, maybe second ballot support to Sheree. Um, So I don't think that this is disrupting Pierre Polyev as a front runner at all. I think that, you know, Pierre, his campaign has said that he sold over 311,000 memberships, whereas Patrick Brown's campaign had only sold about 150,000 memberships, according to um, numbers that we've heard about. So I don't think that this is disrupting um, disrupting the order of the race at all. However, it is removing... um, sort of the the Patrick Brown brand of conservative conservatism from the race, which even though Patrick Brown is an imperfect human being and, and does have things that don't sit well with a lot of people, the, some of the ideas that he was bringing forward are, are more of that centrist, um, more charade-like ideas. And so that will now be missing from the race. So do you think then that this is perhaps a, a bit of a boost for charade? Because like you say, with, with Brown not being available to be the choice of these people who are sort of supporting him, if they're looking to put their vote somewhere else, is it more likely they go to charade than Polyev or Lewis or Bobber or anybody else? It would, in theory, be more likely that they'd go to Shrey. But the way that things work in leadership races is that typically if you're a candidate and you're selling new memberships to people, 150,000 new memberships, according to the numbers that um, the Brown campaign has told us, those people are typically buying a membership to support you. And so if you are not in the race anymore, that often removes um, removes the likelihood that those people will vote. Vote really the yeah, so I don't know that we can say that there'll be a direct benefit um, to Sheree, unless, of course, 
the campaigns um, collaborate and talk and Brown makes a decision to tell all of his supporters to throw their weight behind Sheree. But even if they do that, it would still be very, very tight with Polyev because Polyev sold so many memberships and is pulling so far in advance of everybody else. In terms of the vote itself, number of ballots have gone out. The ballots won't be changed. When you receive a ballot, his name is going to be on it because we're past the point of, of making it, uh, removing him from that ballot. Um, what's the strategy? I, I read about, you know, basically they'll be counting second, third, fourth, and fifth place votes. They'll caught, they'll, if you voted for Brown on the first ballot, it'll be t- how How does that work? And they've done this before, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the way that it would work is that they just would not count the first ballot um, for anybody who put Brown anywhere on their campaign. So if you had Brown as number one, um, then, you know, your down ballot support, say you had Pierre as number two and, and Sheree as number three, those votes would be counted. But if if for whatever round that they're counting on, they just wouldn't be counted, but they still do need to confirm exactly what their process is going to be for that. Yeah, interesting. Now, the other situation here is we've seen some very high-profile conservatives abandon Patrick Brown recently. Uh, Of course, Michelle Rempel-Garner, and we thought it had a lot to do with the UCP leadership decision, and maybe it did, but maybe there was something else. Was the writing on the wall, do you think, within Patrick Brown's campaign that there could be trouble, there could be some allegations of wrongdoing, and people tried to distance themselves? It could have been, but I don't think that's the most likely situation. I mean, it would have had to have been such a perfect storm for all of that to work out. I mean, months ago, people in the federal race didn't know that Kenny was going to be stepping down. And so to me, it's just it seemed like too much of a perfect storm to be planned. Um, but certainly, um, you know, Sean Schnell and uh, Michelle Rempel were the two. Michelle Rempel is the one who stepped away from the campaign and Sean Schnell was Patrick Brown's campaign manager who also stepped away, many believed, because they thought he was going to be involved in the Alberta race, they would have sort of had probably, if there was impropriety happening, they could have perhaps known about it. But I just don't, I don't jump to that conclusion myself, because it's just not who I've known those two individuals to be. So I think this is more coincidence than anything. But I'm sure if there is weight to the allegations that have been made, um, they're probably um, feeling happy to be separated from it. But we just don't know um, exactly what happened there. Going forward, we know there's an, a, a debate being put on by Derek Fildebrandt's outfit later this week in, in, in Alberta in conjunction with Calgary Stampede. I, I don't know who's going to be attending. I think we're, I think we're down to Shrey and Bobber and, and, and maybe Atchison at this point. Polyev is going to be in Calgary, but he's not going to debate. Leslie Lewis won't be in town. I mean, um, where, where's this race in terms of momentum and what's happening? And how do you see things shaping up for the rest of this summer? Well, I think that now that the membership cutoff is passed and ballots are going out, these campaigns are going to focus exactly where they need to focus to GOTV or get out their votes. They're going to go exactly to places where they know that they have strong supporters or it's a room filled with people who would be inclined to vote for them. And so debates become, I think, just less and less um, helpful to campaigns. I mean, debates are inherently risky. So when you participate in a debate, you are opening yourself up to criticism. You're opening yourself up to be sort of compared and contrasted with other leaders, which isn't always a good thing. And I think for somebody like Polyev, He already has a lot of his support locked up in Alberta. I don't think that I don't think that Pierre is, you know, struggling in Alberta for his support. And so it probably just makes sense for him to be in a room full of 
um, people who are inclined to support him um, instead. And that's just what happens during campaigns in terms of where you allocate your time. But yeah, the debate on Friday will be very interesting because you don't have one of your front runners there. And of course, this drama that's happened yesterday, the, the mood will probably be very um, tense, I'd say. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting for sure. Uh, Melissa, always great insight. Really appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much. Janice White. Yes, science. Yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. 1.21 gigawatts. Yeah, science. We're going to talk about science here. Uh, Dinosaurs, uh, which, I mean, hey, come on. It's always fun to talk about dinosaurs. And this is a really cool story. And I I think I knew this, but um, I've maybe forgotten, but... We know that Alberta is a hotspot when it comes to dinosaurs, and we have the Terrell Museum, and we have the Wembley Museum. We're a hotspot. But there's one area in particular that is absolutely incredible, and we're going to find out about that and a recent discovery made there. We're going to chat now and get all the details with Emily Bamforth, who is the curator at the Philip J. Curry Dinosaur Museum in Wembley. Uh, Emily, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. So this this area, first of all, I mean, in reading about this, where this discovery was made, um, the area is very well known, right? Like world famous as a hotbed of dinosaur discovery? That's right. So um, the, the South Peace region, that's the area around Grand Prairie, is actually very fossiliferous. It has um, some of the same age rocks that they get uh, around the Drumheller area. But because we're that much further north, we actually get a different suite of dinosaurs. Um, and so this is another dinosaur hotspot in Alberta. I know when, when you think of dinosaurs, people tend to think of southern Alberta. Yeah, Badlands, um, Drumheller. Yeah, exactly. Um, but they're also very common up here as well. Any idea why? What is it about the geography? I mean, this is area that where you made this most recent discovery. It's sort of like, it seems like there's just a huge, massive collection of fossils all in one relatively small area. That's right. And so what we're excavating right now is is what we call a bone bed, which is an accumulation of lots of animals that basically got washed into one area. And the reason they're there um, has to do with um, a flood about uh, 73 million years ago that basically caught up a herd of these animals called pachyrhinosaurs, which are like think of a small cousin of the Triceratops, except instead of a nose horn, they have this big bony bump on their nose. Okay. Um, so there was a flood that kind of um, took out most of the herd of this animal. So hundreds, maybe thousands of animals um, all got drowned in this flood and were deposited in this one area, which today is a bone bed. Um, so it's a really um, kind of an unusual deposit. And for us, it's great because it is just bone on top of bone on top of bone. It's a very exciting site to work at. And, and you mentioned these Pachyrhinosaurus, but there's all kinds of other ones there, and some were discovered just, you know, the last week or two, right? That's right. And so the uh, the, the famous bone bed up here, it's called the Pipestone Creek bone bed. Um, that one is mainly Pachyrhinosaurus, the, the dinosaur that, that the herd that got right. caught up yeah. in this flood. Um, but in that same deposit, we also get um, Tyrannosaur teeth. So not Tyrannosaurus rex, but we get a small cousin of the Tyrannosaur called a Gorgosaur. Um, and we think these animals went in and they were scavenging on the carcasses of the bones okay. uh, because we find their teeth kind of interbedded in with the, uh, the Pachyrhinosaur bones. Um, so in addition to the Tyrannosaur, we also have a, um, three or four of the smaller, like raptor-like dinosaurs. 
Um, so not as big as the ones that you would see in, in Jurassic Park, for example. These were just kind of little guys, sort of a meter high and smaller. Um, they were also running around at the same time. Um, and the other big dinosaurs, the duckbill dinosaurs, we get. Um, so it was very healthy dinosaur community we had here um, about 73 million years ago. Amazing stuff. It really is. And also, like... You you mentioned Jurassic Park, and we all have seen Jurassic Park, and we all know that they extract DNA from blood from mosquitoes preserved in amber. You found an insect locked inside amber in this area, right? That's right, yeah. So uh, right in the bone bed, um, there's little um, grains of amber that are preserved. Um, so amber, of course, is fossilized tree sap. And so when these animals got washed into this, this area by the flood, there was a lot of trees and, and plant material that got washed in with them. And so some of those trees had uh, little bits of sap that turned into amber eventually. Uh, and so in a couple of pieces of amber that we find, uh, we do get what we call insect inclusions. Um, so it may not be the whole insect, uh, but it may be like wings or body parts or legs. Um, in one case, we did get a whole insect, something like a little like a, like a, a tiny fly um, or an aphid. Um, so that's always really exciting to find, like just this snapshot of, of life preserved in this little grain of amber. Yeah, I'm wondering, like with all these discoveries, we, we, we focus, of course, when you hear tyrannosaur teeth, it's like, wow, that's so cool. And of course they are, and all these fossils are. But when you're starting to talk, you know, you're talking about plant life, you're talking about insect life. Does it sort of help paint a picture of exactly what was going on in this part of the world at a certain time? Oh, absolutely. And so um, kind of the days where people went out and just headhunted dinosaurs, like just wanted to go, found, found the skeleton and took the skull and left, um, those days are largely gone. Now um, paleontologists are more focused on understanding um, the paleo ecosystem, like the world that the dinosaurs were living in. Um, and so the focus is, of course, still on the dinosaurs, but we also pay a lot more attention to the plants they were living with, so the insect communities, the kind of the, what the climate was like, if, you know, if the climate was changing at the time, what the environment was like. Um, and so there's all kinds of, of clues that paleontologists look for um, in the fossil record when they're con- collecting dinosaurs to help tell that story. Now, one of the things I you had like an audience when this most recent discovery was made, right? I mean, it, tell us about the event and, and how people can basically come up and, and watch the proceedings. Yeah. And so one of the great things about the Pipestone Creek bone bed is it's, uh, it's close to Wembley. It's about a, a 20 minute drive from Wembley yeah. um, and just about half an hour from Grand Prairie. So it's, it's accessible, which is great for a fossil site. Most fossil sites are kind of, you know, way in the back and beyond. Um, and, uh, our museum here, the Philip J. Curry Dinosaur Museum, has a program, we call it Paleontologists for a Day, um, where people can sign up and they can actually come out and help us with the excavation at the bone bed. Um, so people can get some hands-on experience with that field paleontology aspect. Um, and we also, in addition, we run tours out to the bone bed as well from the museum. Um, so people can come and get a guided tour of not only the bone bed, but sort of the area itself and sort of telling the story of what the world was like um, when the dinosaurs were around. And what a thrill it must be for, you know, to be there when, when a discovery like this is made. Yep. It's um, definitely, we um, get a lot of great feedback from from the Paleo for a Day program. And it it really gives people a sense of, kind of the aspects of paleontology that you don't really get when you go to a museum. Like when you go to a museum, you kind of see the end product, you know, the mounted skeletons and all the science that has been done. 
But of course, there's the backstory too, like the finding fossils and collecting them and excavating them and preparing them and curating them. Um, and that's one of the things that Paleo for a Day really helps us to kind of, it's a story we can tell people about what happens before you go to a museum and, and see the, you know, the final exhibits. Amazing stuff. Emily, thank you so much. We'll, ch- we'll chat again. We love dinosaur stuff on the show. So anytime you guys have something going on, let us know. Oh, absolutely. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate it very much. Thank you. That's um, Emily Bamforth, who is a curator at the Philip J. Curry Dinosaur Museum in Wembley, Alberta, up by Grand Prairie. And as, and as she you know, tells us, it's that paleosaur, uh, paleontologist for a day program sounds pretty cool. And there was a bunch of people out there doing that that day when they made this most recent discovery. How cool would that be? Hey, Your Majesty, have you been to that one up at Wembley? No. You didn't take a field trip there? I don't No, It was too far. Did you go to Terrell Museum? You've been to that oh, yeah. one. Yeah, we used to do it in our like grade four class where yeah. we would actually stay over there under the dinosaurs and stuff. You got to stay at Yeah, Terrell we got to museum? stay in the museum. No I think way. the school still does it or did before COVID. Oh, would that ever be cool? Yeah, it was the coolest field trip. Huh. I don't think it existed when I was in school. I don't think it had been built yet. <laughs> was the museum there? I don't think so. Yeah. I, I don't think so. Uh, I think it came along later. I could be wrong, though. Hey, speaking of, she mentioned the uh, Gorgosaurus, which is a relative of the Tyrannosaurus rex. Like she said, they found Tyrannosaur teeth. It wasn't Tyrannosaurus rex te- uh, teeth. It was Gorgosaurus teeth. Gorgosaurus is a smaller relative of the T-Rex, but pretty close. I mean, it's, it's a big animal. Um, one is going on the auction block this month. You can buy, and it's a complete skeleton. Um, it'll be sold. They're, they're figuring you're going to have to have as much as $8 million if, if you want to buy this thing. But uh, it's the first time uh, this massive dinosaur species has ever been available for private collectors to purchase. Uh, Sotheby's uh, is doing the auction. 10 feet tall, 22 feet long, uh, so mature at the time of its death, 70 million years ago, found in Montana back in 2018. It's, there's only a handful of them that have ever been found in the United States. Most of them have been discovered in Canada, as we just heard from Emily. Um, so yeah, if you got, you know, extra 8 million bucks lying around and you think this might be something that you want, uh, get in on the auction that happens July 28th in New York and get yourself a Gorgosaurus skeleton. <laughs> Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. 